Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this night. Thank you for all these people who are here. I uh, thank you that the semester hasn't gotten too busy yet. Lord, we pray uh, for our time together. We pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. We pray that your, that your spirit would come and, and be alive in us. That he would awaken our minds and our hearts to the truth of the gospel of Jesus and how beautiful Jesus is and how much he has done to redeem us and to bring us freedom in life. Lord, we think tonight of uh, Abby Mason in uh, the accident yesterday. Uh, we pray that you would take care of her. We pray that you would bring healing to her body. We praise you uh, that there was not more serious uh, damage done. We pray that you would grant her a quick recovery, give the doctors skill and wisdom as they attend to her wounds. Um, we thank you for uh, your people here on campus who have already tried to reach out and love her well. We pray that she would know that, um, that we love her and we care about her and that you are near to her. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for us from uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Um, a little bit of a longer reading. I tried to cut out verses where I could. Um, but this is how the Bible thinks. Of, it's how the Bible sets up us as people. And it's how it builds its case on how we are to relate to one another. This is a picture of the way that it was supposed to be. So look, in front of you or up there behind me, says the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the, other, over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Then the Lord God formed the man out of, uh, of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is the last time that has happened. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine bearing your soul before someone and feeling no ounce of guilt of of the desire to hide and to cover yourself up? Can you imagine being known in such depth and intimacy that everything about you was exposed and in that place you were loved? That's the way it was supposed to be. That's the way that God set this up. He created mankind to be deeply known and deeply loved. He created us for relationships. Several years ago, uh, there was a movie called Into the Wild. Many of you probably saw it, no doubt. Some of you may have read the book. Uh, It's a story of Christopher McCandless who no longer wanted to be constrained by the things of this world, by capitalism, by uh, relationships. He wanted to escape from his Atlanta upbringing. And so what he did is he reacted against this American dream, and he just disappeared out west for a while. And he actually ended up in Alaska trying to find himself. And he said this in his book. He said, no phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes, ultimate freedom, the climatic, the climatic, I think he said climactic, the climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual pilgrimage. I'm not even totally sure what that means. Um, But what I think he was getting at was that he was going out into the forest and he ended up in Alaska trying to find himself, trying to discover, kind of minimalize his life so that he could in that place try and discover his life. So there he is. And if you know the story, you know that that supposed ultimate freedom became McCandless's darkest prison. And as he starts to realize that happiness is not found in isolation, he starts desiring to to go back home. He's longing for his family and for his friends and for community. So he packs his bags and he begins the journey out of the wilderness. He'd been living in a Volkswagen van. He begins the journey out of the wilderness. But the main river that had to be crossed to get out, it was too high to cross. So he had to go back to his van and live for a while longer. But his food was dwindling. And he was dying. And in that, that moment of, of starvation, he ate some poisonous berries that he knew might have killed him or that might kill him. He ate them, and they began to work death into his life. And in those final moments of his life, he writes in a book this phrase, Happiness is only found, is only real when it's shared. But happiness is only real when it's shared. And, and what McCandless is getting at in that statement and that sentiment is exactly what God is giving us and laying out for us in the passage we just read. We were created, we were formatted, we were wired for deep and intimate and lasting relationships. And so the way that we're going to look at that tonight is we're going to talk about how God created us. And we're going to see that He created us for love. He created us to love. But He also created us for life. So let's look at the first one right there, that we were created for love. So in this passage, we see 
that we were created to give love and to receive love. That's the nature of a relationship. But I'm going to take it just one step further. In this passage, I think that we see that we were created in love. We were birthed out of love for the purpose of loving. That may sound weird. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, Whether you uh, believe in God, whether or not you believe in the Christian God or some other manifestation of a God, uh, you have probably, or whether you grew up in this part of the country or not, you've probably heard the expression that God is love. That's kind of a famous little tagline that you may hear around. And that's certainly, from from a Christian mindset, that is true. Uh, But it's more than just kind of an abstract, philosophical, or feel-good feeling thing. In the Christian worldview, in the way that the Bible sets up God and love and all of these things, God isn't just someone who loves. Love isn't just something He does. It's something He is. So God is love. doesn't mean God is loving. It means that is part and parcel of His personhood. It's in His being. He is the source of love. And what we see in this passage is that God creates uh, man and woman in His image. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But if God Himself is love... Think about it. Love requires an object. But before God created man and woman, if he is already love, who or what is he loving? He hasn't created anything yet. Before anything was, God is. So what is God loving? He's loving himself. Look in the passage right there in front of you. Look at verses 26 and 27. This is... What the Bible unfolds in the remainder of its pages, the concept called the Trinity. Now, I don't, like we could spend years and not really ever understand that, but we're going to give it a shot in two minutes. (laughs) So, look back in 26 and 27. Listen for the language of plurality right here. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you see it? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's God talking to? Himself. Unlike your crazy uncle, God is actually talking to himself and he's not crazy. There is a plurality in God's being. There are three persons in this one being. They are same substance, equal in power and glory. That's how the Westminster Confession says it. In this one being. Now, if that doesn't kind of blow your mind and mess with you a little bit, you probably aren't hearing it right. It's an abstract, it's a crazy idea in a sense. But it's the way that the Bible presents God. Because if He is love, he, He has to have someone to love And he does. He loves. But there's love between the Father, the Son, the Spirit, co-equal. They're loving each other. It's this dance, this Trinitarian dance of love. You can write that on your bulletin board. Um, So let me try out and draw. Let me try and draw out a few implications for what that big, kind of seemingly abstract theological concept means for you and me and for all humans. First is this: it says that we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. What does this mean? The Hebrew word used right there, selim, it's kind of a weird word, selim, it's not used that much in the Old Testament, but when it is, 
It's used in this very specific way. In Dan, the book of Daniel, which is a, a prophecy, a minor prophet, a real small book. But in Daniel, it's talking about the king of Babylon, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. These are real people, and these are real historical events. This king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Israel and had taken over a large portion of it. And King Nebuchadnezzar was only one person. And so as he sat in his temple, he wanted a way to let his conquered land know that it belonged to him. And so what he would do is he would create these stone, and in some places gold images, and he would send them out into the territory to mark the spot as if to say, this place is mine. This is mine. It belongs to me. And it would say that he would create an image and go put it out in the land. That word is the exact same word used right here in Genesis 1. That when God creates man and calls him an image of himself, he is in essence saying, I am creating little versions of me. Now, humans are not God. We aren't. There is a creature-creator distinction there. There are some religions and worldviews that say that, that humans take part in God, that, that there's kind of a, a overlapping circles there. That is not, I don't believe that's true, and we could go into a thousand reasons why. That's certainly not the Christian conception of God and, and man. But He creates us as His image, so we, we resemble Him. We resemble things about God in this world. Now, okay, that's what image means. Let me tell us how we know what this means. Think about if you turn on the news or if you listen to NPR, any sort of news outlet, turn on the news. Who are we kidding? If you open up your Facebook account or your web browser, the things that you will see over in the Middle East right now is this self-proclaimed ISIS. They are destroying all of these historical sites, these archaeological temples, and these things that have been around for millennia, they are going in and bulldozing and bombing these things. Why? Is there any... Are they threatened by a 3,000-year-old temple? Does it have power? No. It's a tourist destination. Why are they destroying it? Because they know that that represents something. It's an image to a different worldview, a different religion, something that is against their worldview and their way of thinking. So they destroy it. They want to do away with it. That's what, that's what we're getting at in Genesis 1, that we're in God's image, that there's something real about the way we're made. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us as people that we're in God's image? The implications are massive. Massive. Probably could spend a semester talking about this. We're only going to talk about it as it relates to us as, in, as relational beings. The implications for us as relational beings is that we were created in the image of a God who is love, and that means that we were created to love and be loved. We were created, we were wired for relationships. And like Christopher McCandless found out, a very real part of us will begin to wither away and suffer when we remove ourselves or when we are removed from relationships. If you talk to anyone who's ever uh, been in uh, solitary confinement, they will tell you that the real brutality of it is not the concrete floors or the minimalistic furnishings, it's the isolation. 
It, it makes you crazy. And that's not even a Christian thing. That's just a thing that people know. Christians don't have the corner market on this truth. We, we're telling you why that's true. But all kinds of people will recognize that isolation begins to cut across the way we were made. And it makes us crazy. The second thing that we see from this and that we are created for love, and it flows right out of that. The scripture says that it is not good, in verse 218, it is not good. As as God looked out over everything that he had made, it's super important. Up until this point, everything that he had done, he, he looks at it and says, it is good. And here for the first time, he sees that man is alone. He says, that is not good. It is not good that man is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, uh, before all of my introverted friends in the room uh, start like wanting to wield their swords and come after me, I'm not saying it's not good to have alone time. We all need that, right? Some of us more than others. Um, what I am saying, though, is whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, it, irregardless of that, you don't... <laughs> Britain size. Uh, I'm going to dignify all of you introverts who have been made to feel bad for the fact that you like to be alone. That is okay. But I am saying you were not created to be alone forever. You were not created to live outside of meaningful, life-giving relationships where there's a give and take there. That is not the way that you were wired. There was a uh, a woman who... uh, a number of years ago, I guess actually in 1995, she, this was kind of at the, I guess right about many of you were born, at the, at the dawn of the internet age when kind of everything was changing. You guys have lived in that age, so you don't understand how big this was. Um, when everything was going online, she wrote this book called uh, Life on the Screen. And in that book, she was talking about all the benefits that would come through all this technology and and how it would be so much more possible to relate to people around the world and to have these meaningful relationships and all of this stuff. And there is a very real part of technology which is beautiful and which can be used in amazing ways and is used in amazing ways. But she wrote a follow-up book in 2011 after she had seen some of the effects of what technology has done to us as uh, relational beings. If the first book was really optimistic, the second book, you might say, was a bit more pessimistic. She says this. She says, on social networking sites, and by that she's referring to everything, texting, Snapchat, Periscope, all of it. uh, We think that we will be presenting ourselves to the world. But in reality, our projected image or profile ends up as somebody else often the fantasy version of ourselves and who we want to be. Hmm. God created us to be known deeply, intimately for who we are. And yet we all know that in college, something that no one tells you is that in this place where you are surrounded by people almost at every turn, almost nauseatingly so, It is entirely possible to be around people and yet feel functionally isolated and totally alone. Uh, Through my time in college and then now having worked in college ministry for much of the last 16 years, I can tell you that loneliness is one of, if not the biggest thing that I talk to people about. And it evidences itself in all kinds of ways, in depression, anxiety, 
in, in I mean, just abstract or abject loneliness. I don't have friends. I don't connect with people. They don't know me. I don't feel like anyone really gets me. I haven't been on a date in ever. Uh, I, uh, I don't know how to go on a date. Uh, I don't know how to talk to a girl or a guy. Like, all that stuff. Like, I hear these things. This is real. So there's the, the technological difficulty of this. But there's more than that. Another thing which begins to work against being, uh, being known and it, something begins to fuel as being alone is, is ambition. Now look, you're at TU, you're at the University of Tulsa, which means almost by definition that you are ambitious. You didn't get in here by like being a joker in high school and doing nothing. Uh, if that's you, you cheated the system or your parents teach here. Um, just kidding, Grayson and Connor. There you go. Yep. Um, little shout out there, a reverse shout out. Um, ambition. What is it about this? You're here, you want to achieve, you want to perform, you want to get that job and that career. But something that no one is going to tell you, and so I will, something that no one is going to tell you is that success, this blind pursuit of, of career and ambition without meaningful relationships does not equal joy in life and fulfillment. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Why? Why doesn't it? Why can't it? Because you were made in God's image. You were made for deep relationships of love and commitment and mutual sharing. And friends, when you blindly pursue career, when you blindly pursue academics and filling your resume and all of the things that many of you are either already doing or about to start doing for the next four years, you will feel the trade-off. You will. Talk, freshmen, talk to some seniors and ask them if that's true. There's simply no way to do both. Uh, a guy named Rod Dreer. Rod Dreer is a uh, fairly well-known author, writer, has written books, and uh, would work in journalism for a while. Uh, he wrote a book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. Uh, and that's the name of his sister, Ruthie Lemming. Rod grew up in a small town in Louisiana. The bizarre part of all this is I read his book and then realized as I'm reading the book that he grew up and the whole story is situated like 10 miles from where my, where my wife grew up. And so that was fun. Uh, side note. Um, so Roger, he, he writes, he had this very successful journalism career and he climbed the ladder and he did it. I mean, he was writing for major publications and online journals and all of this stuff. And his sister, Ruthie, came down with cancer. And it was as she was uh, going through treatments and, and dealing with this disease and the outworkings of that in her life, that he saw her community, which was not much of anything to speak of in terms of the, the glory of the place in Louisiana, he saw that community envelop her and care for her and love her and bring her meals and take her to the doctor and all the numerous things they did. He saw that from afar and he realized that there had been a trade-off in his life. And as he talked with some of his friends kind of who had pursued uh, the career at the expense of everything, he, on behalf of them, said this, Everything I've done has been for career advancement, and we have done well. But we are alone in the world. And then later on, 
He says, community means more than many of us realize. It certainly means more than your job. It certainly means more than your job. It certainly means more than your academics. It certainly means more than getting into the right grad school. Friends, you can achieve all of those things and functionally, realistically, practically be dying on the inside. And God is calling us out of that. He was saying that is not the way it was supposed to be. You were created for something so much greater. The third aspect of this right here something that will keep you from ever entering in into close relationships is something we call shame. Shame. Now, I'm just going to mention this briefly because we're basically going to talk about this for all of next week. But shame is this, uh, this idea in this sense that not just that I've done something wrong and I feel bad about it, I would more characterize that as guilt, this, this knowledge that I should have done this, I did this, I feel bad about having not done that thing I should have done. Shame is, is this overarching thing. It's like getting in the dunk tank. It just surrounds you. It comes over you. It becomes everything about you. And you think, it's not just that I failed, it's that I'm a failure. It's not just that I messed up in that relationship. It's that I've messed up every relationship I've ever been in. No one would ever love me. I am unlovable, and therefore I am destined for loneliness. The more you begin to believe that storyline about yourself, that narrative that some of us have going into our mind, the more and more isolated you will be over the course of your life. And so what do we do with those things? Well, God has created us in His image. He's given us this picture of the way that it was supposed to be. But it's not just that we were created for love. We were created for life. And that's the second thing we look at tonight, and this is much shorter. If you look back at, that, at the passage where God is narrating creation, the ordering and fulfilling of the world, you see that God gave these humans, these image bearers, a purpose. Now, I read a lot of that purpose, and I'm not, I'm not going to reread it. But when you look down in there, you get the sense that He has set them up for the good life, for living fully, for flourishing in this world. He gave them food to eat. He gave them work to do, to tend the garden. He gave them this other person who they could go have sex with all day long and not feel weird about it. It's amazing. It would be amazing. Trust me. God created them for this full picture of life and flourishing. Now, if I asked you what you were here for, what are you here for? Not at TU, I'm asking you, what do you exist for? Why are you in this world? What are any of us here for? You might list off any number of things. I'm I'm here to to go get a job and to, to study so I can go get this skill or this trade and go do that, to work. I'm here for, because I want a family, I want to have kids. I'm here uh, because I want to go and, and make beautiful things through art or through petroleum engineering and learning how to extract the natural resources out of the ground in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. I know you guys. You're excited about that, and you should be. Those are great things. And the Bible would look at all of those things and say, yes, yes, you were created for all of those things. When God looks at Adam and Eve in this passage and He looks at them and says, Take it and work it. Take care of this world. 
Have tons of babies. That's what be fruitful and multiply means. Just go and have tons of sex and have tons of babies, and it's going to be awesome. Populate this world with more of my images. Because God fully understands that he is the greatest possible being, and that man in his image is the second greatest possible being. And he's saying, go and fill the world Take dominion over it and and make culture and create technology and go find oil and go make beautiful physical discoveries and all this stuff that you want to do. Go do all of that. And that will be good. That's what you were created for. But he doesn't send us out alone. He sends us out together because, very plainly and simply, if it was just Adam, there's no more babies. There's no more life. The the expansion, the fruitful and multiply thing doesn't happen if it's just Adam. Or if it's two Adams. Or if it's two Eves. It doesn't happen. And so when God looks out the world and gives it purpose and creates it for life, He creates this possibility for procreation and for life to actually go forth and exist. Now, if we would be honest... Many of us, even though we may, not all of us, even though we may call ourselves Christians, even though at some level we we may buy into this big picture of what God wants for the world, our functional and practical answer and the thing that we think we're here for is to be happy. Is to be happy. In the way that we have been told by culture and maybe by your parents, certainly it's the air that we breathe right now, just living in the world, in the United States. We are told that the way to find that life, to find that happiness and joy, is by looking within and by living out your desires and by doing whatever your heart tells you to do, by letting go of all the constraints around you and just follow your heart Friends, can we not learn from Christopher McCandless what that brings us? What that does to us when we follow that kind of narrative in that story? And we're going to get into this a lot next week, but this is where the Bible comes in and says, okay, if we actually still lived in Genesis 2 and the way things were supposed to be, then yes, just go follow your heart because your heart is, is not fallen. It's not tainted by sin. There's nothing wrong about it. Go and do what your heart says. But that is not the world we live in. We live in a world where the fall has happened and sin isn't just out there. It's not just the things we see in the news or around the corner. Sin is the thing that's in here. And it's affecting not just out there, it's affecting, it's affecting us. And it's affecting our relationships. So God is saying, if you're ever going to find love and life, you can only find it in me. You can only find it in me. And if you try and find it outside of him, then you will find neither. But, and this is, this is a big, this is a big but that sounds, I know it's coming every time. It's a big, but if you come to God, you find both love and life, not in an abstract sense, but in a person, you find love and life, not in an abstract philosophical sense, but you find them in a person. You find them in the person of Jesus because God becomes one of us. 
And, and Jesus comes and he walks around on the earth, not just as an example of what love looks like or what love would be like, like not just an example of how to live. Jesus came love and life embodied. He came to show the extent of his love for us by giving his life for us. And friends, that, that is what Christians call the gospel. That's the good news, that God doesn't just challenge us to go out and love our neighbor. He comes and embodies love and says, you are my enemy, and through the person of my son Jesus, I have brought you in and made you a friend. And when that begins to become true of you, then it fundamentally totally changes the way that you relate to other people. Because, and we're going to talk about this next week, After the fall, we turn inward and we become all about ourselves and wanting what we want and trying to get it out of our own desires. And that is wrong. That leads to death and destruction in the the destruction of people around us because we move out into relationships asking them to fulfill us. It's selfishness. But when the love of Christ sinks into your heart, He begins to recreate you into His image. And the very thing that He did for you, lay down His life so that you can have life. You begin to be able to do that for others. And it totally changes the way relationships work in you and around you. You have to come to Jesus first. If you try to do this without Him, your life will be miserable and you will fail. But in Christ, you can change. You can be different. Your relationships can be the way they were supposed to be. But only in Him. Let's pray together.